Hello and welcome to Biosounds, where PhD students give you a taste of science happening at the University of Geneva. I'm Inês, the presenter of episode 2 of season 3, and today we'll have the pleasure to hear Professor Simone Peccatini interviewed by our correspondent João. Enjoy! It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Professor Simone Bagatini, assistant professor at the Department of Pathology and Immunology at the University of Geneva, working in host microbiome interactions. Thanks a lot for coming on board and accepting our invitation, Simone. Thank you, Joao, for having me. It's a real pleasure. I would like to start the interview not with a question, but with a scenario. And I want you to imagine that you're invited for a hike around Salev here in Geneva, and you have a couple of friends that have another friend coming over and this friend has no scientific background but he's really interested on what you do. How would you describe the work you do here at the university for this person which is interested but not knowledgeable about science? Right, so this, this actually happens very often as you can imagine and, and I believe that what we do here is not so hard to convey or to, or to explain the basic concept is that we all carry in our intestine as many bacterial cells as the number of mammalian cells we have in our body and this amounts to about a kilogram of bacteria these bacteria turned out to be over the years extremely important for our development and our physiology and there are many factors that impact the function of these bacteria and how these bacteria function or what type of bacteria we carry in our intestine really has a tremendous impact on our health. To the extent that there are diseases that are caused by an imbalance in these microbes, diseases that can be cured by restoring a good balance between these microbes or a good equilibrium between these microbes and the host. I'm an immunologist as a training, but uh, my background is, is in cellular immunology. And so the interest of the lab lays really in understanding what is the interaction between our immune system and the intestinal microbes. In particular, how these microbes, which have co-evolved with us for millions of years, have learned to deal with immune responses. Whenever we have an infection or an inflammation, we have activation of the immune system with release of molecules that might be detrimental for these microbes. So the question is, how do these microbes sense immune responses and how do they react? And what are the effects of this reaction on our health? And uh, we hear about a lot the host microbiome, which is what you're talking about. In order to understand a bit more, there's components of this host microbiome. There's the good bacteria, and but also there's bacteria that live within us that could be bad and cause some diseases, maybe through the dysregulation, as you're saying? Right, so the vast majority of bacteria that live in our gut are uh, bona fide symbionts, uh, so they don't hurt us, and uh, they produce metabolic products that are helpful for our development and for our functioning. Within the microbiota, there is always a small percentage of bacteria that we call pathobionts, which can potentially cause disease and can potentially expand in the gut and, and generate what we call dysbiosis, so an imbalance between good and bad bacteria. Having said that, all bacteria are to some extent potentially pathogenic. Our immune system is built to respond to these bacteria. So a, a thing, an important point to keep in mind is that for some bacteria, 
the fact whether or not they are pathogenic really depends on the location. So as long as these bacteria are separated from our cell and they reside in the gut lumen, there is no problem. But when these bacteria, for instance, enter the circulation, even if they are not in principle bad bacteria, of course, that can cause trouble. So, but, but again, there is a portion of this bacteria that is inherently more capable of uh, promoting disease. And those are the, the pathobionts, and we all have them in a you know, variable amount, but I would say that you know, 1% or so of these bacteria are potentially pathogenic. I see. And do you have a special interest in any specific bacteria that live in our gut in your research? Yeah, so we, we do have a, a, a few projects on, on one specific bacterium, which is Klebsiella pneumoniae. Uh, don't be fooled by, don't be tricked by the name. Although it's called pneumonia, the main location for this bacteria is the gut. Most people carry some level of Klebsiella pneumonia in their intestine. And again, this is a pathobiont, so for most of us, this does not result in any type of disease. However, there are certain conditions in which this bacteria can uh, become extremely bad. And these are, for instance, inflammatory, chronic inflammatory conditions. Think about inflammatory bowel disease. So in, in these conditions, Enterobacteriaceae in general, which is the family to which Klebsiella belongs, create a lot of troubles because they can expand upon inflammatory conditions and then take over. So they substitute, they take up niches that would belong to good bacteria. And then they have the ability to sustain inflammation and so to, to ignite this vicious circle, right? There are also other scenarios in which Klebsiella can be extremely bad. And uh, for those, we refer to strains of Klebsiella that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. So multi-drug resistant uh, Klebsiella pneumonia strains. There are plenty of, there's plenty of these strains, especially in the hospital. And the big problem there is for, uh, for instance, transplant patients. Before receiving their transplant, these patients need to undergo antibiotic therapies that, uh, that allow the patient to be uh, protected from bacterial infection. However, if uh, these patients have this bacteria in their intestine, the moment you treat them with antibiotics, these bacteria just expand to the level that they colonize the, the entire gut. And when this happens, this is, is extremely dangerous because the bacterium can go into the circulation and then cause systemic infection. Uh, and so there are, there are instances in which people are ready to receive a transplant, but the doctors cannot proceed because they know the moment the uh, patient is put on antibiotics, then the bacterium will expand. And so people are trying to find ways to eliminate this bacteria from the intestine in, a, in an effective manner. So not only can this bacteria expand after chronic inflammation conditions, but also because of interventions that we apply in these people, such as antibiotic treatments, as you said. Yes. And I imagine also that it could be tricky to study this in actual human patients. And it's common that in science we use models to study certain kind of diseases or conditions in patients. What kind of model do you use in your lab? So we, we mostly use mouse models and uh, these are very convenient models. There are some differences, of course, between uh, mice and humans, but the, the mice have proven to be a very reliable and robust system to study the gut microbiota. And so what, uh, what uh, has been done by many prominent laboratories is to demonstrate that uh, phenotypes or diseases or effects on the host that are mediated by the microbiota can be reproduced in mice by taking uh, stool samples 
from uh, patients or donors and then transferring them into mice that are uh, so-called germ-free. So these mice are raised in completely sterile conditions. They have no bacteria on their skin, in their intestine. And so you can use them as, as, uh, as an empty host to reconstitute. And very often the effects that are seen in the humans that are promoted by these bacteria can then be reproduced in the mice. Uh, and this has been um, a really key instrument also to prove the efficacy of combining uh, certain microbes with certain types of drugs or to prove that certain types of drugs don't work because of mm. certain microbes, right? So it's a very, very convenient model. And so in the field, people try to go from the human observation to the mouse model and then go back to the human to confirm or apply their findings. I was also curious if you could share with us one of your recent findings or something that is exciting for you and also for us to know. Yes, 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 of course. So, so you know, I find everything we do in the lab extremely exciting, and but everything is also extremely preliminary because I just started my lab a little longer than a year ago. So I, I would be careful in making any claims. Uh, but there are a couple of things that we've been working on lately which I think are consistent enough to to be optimistic, at least, about the outcome of these experiments. So one of the things that we are, have tried to do is we have previously shown that whenever the host, in this case a mouse, and we think also human, um, has an ongoing immune response, the bacteria in the intestine adapt very quickly to this immune response and they change their transcription profile, meaning that they change the genes that they are using at that time. And by changing the genes that they are using, then they change the metabolites they produce and they change the environment in the gut. And so one question that we are trying to address is what, what is it that this bacteria sense? So what are the host molecules that communicate with to this bacteria? And so we had uh, a bunch of uh, hypotheses or candidates, all of which proved to be uh, completely untrue. And, and I think that now we have found one host molecule that is actually upstream of all the cascade of events that are necessary to signal to this bacteria in the intestine and to produce this adaptation. So this is very exciting for us because we imagine that there would be scenarios or diseases in which the, the changes in the behavior of this microbe are, uh, microbes are then responsible for you know, aggravation of the disease. And so if we can find which is the host molecule that is forcing these microbes to behave differently, then we can stop this. Another finding that we recently had is, or an indication, I would say, we, we need to confirm this, but we had this hypothesis that might be true, actually, where pathobionts such as Klebsiella, which I was referring before, may actually be long-term changed by immune response. And so when these bacteria are exposed, to strong inflammatory stimuli, and then something changes in these bacteria so that these bacteria are then able to promote the onset of inflammation. Um, and this would be a, a you know, feedback mechanism by which they can sustain their expansion in the gut at the expenses of other uh, bacteria. And so we think this is also very exciting and very novel and uh, is something that we need to follow up on. I see. So it's very interesting that because then you're kind of leading the way or pointing to the direction where 
an acute stimulus, for example, irritation on the bowel that triggers an immune response would produce this host molecule and change the metabolism or how the bacteria process different metabolites and then expand and create an environment that would promote and prolong this inflammatory response in order for them to grow. And this could probably develop into a chronic inflammatory disease in the host. Right. So part of this is, is known, so I don't want to give the impression that we are discovering this. I think that the spin we are giving it, uh, it's, it's a bit different. So what is known is that when you have inflammatory conditions, these conditions favor certain microbes. And so what changes is the composition of, of the microbiota, so the relative abundance of the species. Uh, what we are trying to understand is whether by beside changing the composition of the microbiota, this also changes the behavior of microbes on a per microbe basis. Uh, and this is something that has never been addressed. And I think that we have good evidences that this is actually the case. And this changes a bit the way you look at it, because then the, the problem or the worry is not just the presence of certain bacteria, but how the bacteria that you could even think of as beneficial are behaving in that specific context. And so knowing what's inside your gut, which is the main sort of analysis or sequencing that people are doing nowadays, would not be sufficient any anymore. You would need to know how the microbes are behaving regardless of who they are. And I see a lot of implications on that. And even as you mentioned, it is known that the composition changes and this could trigger some pathogenesis on the host or promote it even more. There are ways of targeting this in applications, such as there are lots of companies that sell food supplements with probiotics that will exactly change your composition into a more healthy state. But your target is actually to not care so much about the composition, but try to change how the bacteria that are already there process different uh, metabolites and hosts. Right, so the, I think that the two things are not exclusive. Uh, we are more interested in the, in the specific genes, in the specific functions of the, this bacteria that may be relevant for human health. Once you know which function is important, then you can, you can use this information in, in different ways. One way would be to produce probiotics that, for instance, have enhanced expression of that gene or enhanced production of that molecule. Or if the molecule is a detrimental molecule, it would be to block the molecule with antibodies or, or, or pharmacological means, right? So uh, I think that there is an overlap between the two things. And in fact, one, uh, one thing that we are doing is to work with bacteria that we can engineer so we can regulate and tune the expression of these genes that uh, respond to host immune activation so that then we can go back to mouse models and, and inquire whether by modulating uh, forcibly the expression of, of these genes, uh, we can uh, have an impact on the, on the health of the animal. So it's kind of, I don't know if this is a bit bold, but it's an analogy that I can see. It's kind of like in a football match where you have different kinds of players and some of the players are not doing so well. So you could either do a replacement and change the player or actually rearrange the players within themselves according to their function and making them better at the game. Yeah, I, I love the analogy. I never thought about this this way, but I think I'm going to steal this analogy. It works very well. Yeah, I, it sounds like that. It's cool. very, very interesting. And one basic question maybe is that I imagine that when you're introducing a new bacteria type in this host microbiome by giving a probiotic, 
there is a certain kind of resistance to how this bacteria will grow in this patient, right? Because it's an established environment already. So could you tell us a bit more on the hurdles that, or the barriers that there are to make sure that this bacteria that you're giving as an addition really stays on the gut and promotes its beneficial effects? Right, so this is where it becomes very, very complicated. And I don't think that we have means or methods to ensure that. So it's, it's really a trial and error. These uh, communities are incredibly complex to a level that we don't really understand yet. And there's been a lot of ecology uh, coming into the field and uh, people trying to use complex algorithms and models to, to predict this. But it's very hard because very often species depend upon other species. And so it's very hard to predict what will happen if you try to substitute one species, for instance. And another thing that you were referring to is what we call colonization resistance. And this is usually a term that we use in the, in the context of pathogens. So the, the colonization resistance means that your microbiota is able to prevent a pathogen from expanding in the intestine. And this is a very well-known feature of the microbiota. However, this works also toward uh, non-pathogenic microbes. And so sometimes you try to insert a new microbe into a community and the community will reject it. Maybe because there is a crucial metabolite that this microbe needs to feed itself, but this metabolite is all taken up by another bacterium that is already present and it's better at taking it up, right? So these things are very hard to predict and I think that they account for most of the variability that we see across studies. Mm -hmm. There is such a complexity. Again, one like healthy microbiota contains about a thousand species of bacteria, over hundred trillions of units. Uh, it's it's quite hard to control such level of complexity. So what we like to do is to work with a reductionist system, where we work in mice that we administer three or four species of bacteria, and the mice have been either pre-treated with antibiotics or they are germ-free so that we know that this bacteria will expand. Uh, but when you go in humans, it's, it's a bit more complicated. Interesting. And going back to your animal model, so you said you studied this bacteria Klebsiella in the context of an inflammation or a trigger from the host that would promote the growth or not of this bacteria. Do you have a specific disease model that you will use in these animals? We do. Uh, we are using multiple different disease models. Uh, the models we, we use are models for inflammatory bowel disease, so either Crohn disease or ulcerative colitis. Okay. The symptoms differ between these, these pathologies, and these patients have, of course, diarrhea, they suffer from pain, and they have very recurrent flares. So basically, you treat them, and when you stop treating them, they have you know, um, flares of these uh, acute symptoms. And this is, these are, these are life-lasting life diseases, there is no cure. You can treat them, but I imagine that you target more the host side of it, maybe using some anti-inflammatory... You're, you're totally right. So, yes. the targeting of the host microbiome, it's fairly recent. Yes, uh, although in these patients very often antibiotics are used, and when antibiotics mm -hmm. are used, um, then, then there is an, an amelioration of the symptoms. All of this is fascinating. And then... Um, one thing that I personally like to ask about people that are in other fields is what do they do on a daily basis? And regarding your that here in the lab you use a lot of animal models, could you just tell us how does an, a day of an experiment with mice would look like? 
our experiments are extremely long. So you have a phase where, for instance, a standard experiment, you have to pre-treat mice with antibiotics to grow the bacteria, to feed these mice the, the bacteria, to wait for this bacteria to expand. And then a week or two weeks after you start promoting the effect that you want on the immune system and in models of colitis, this thing can take eight weeks. And then, and then you, you study the outcome of this inflammation of the bacteria. So you extract the bacteria from the fecal samples of these animals, and then you extract the nucleic acids from these, and then you start all the sequencing and so on and so forth. So the daily routine is not so much of a routine, actually. So it really changes depending on which experimental phase you are. Yeah, and that's like, I think why I'm so motivated about science, because it's never the same as you described. Okay, so another thing that I, we have to talk about, which is I saw that one of your recent publications, probably from your previous work in the lab that you were before, was trying to use these uh, microbiomes or these host microbiota in order to promote uh, better efficacy of an oral vaccine. Yeah. And you call it uh, TMDI, which is Transient Microbiota Depletion Boosted Immunization. Right. And I was just fascinated about the idea. Could you just maybe expand yes. a little bit more so on this that? So this is, this is a funny story. This is a way we try to trick the microbiota, actually. So I, I uh, told you before that the microbiota can provide colonization resistance against pathogen. There is one pathogen that I was studying during my postdoctoral uh, training in, in the laboratory of Eric Paymer in New York. And um, Eric had been studying Listeria for a long time. And uh, at some point we realized that uh, maybe there was colonization resistance uh, from the microbiota also against Listeria monocytogenes. So this is a bacterium that um, follows the orogastric route of infection. So you eat contaminated food like unpasteurized milk or, or cold cats. And then the bacterium enters the intestine. And this is a real pathogen. This is not a pathobion. So it has the whole set of virulence factors that allow it to cross the epithelial barrier. Now, the, the interesting thing about Listeria is that Listeria is an, is an intracellular pathogen. So it invades the cells. And by doing so, it promotes a specific type of T cells uh, that are called CD8 cytotoxic T cells. And these cells are very important to kill intracellular pathogens. And so Listeria has been used for decades to study CD8 T cell responses. And it's been engineered to express also tumoral antigens. And as such, it is used in clinical trials to mount cytotoxic CD8 T cell responses against tumoral antigens. I see. So you give this listeria expressing these tumor proteins or antigens so that these T cells recognize these antigens that come from the listeria, which won't cause any disease. And then they will be trained or triggered to respond and kill the tumors that is exactly. in, maybe exactly. in another side of the body. Or, Correct. And, and, and it's important to point out here that these strains of Listeria are attenuated. So they are genetically engineered so that they lack the virulence factors that make Listeria pathogen. And so you are keeping the capacity of Listeria to promote the CD8 T cell response, but you are preventing it from causing diseases. And so we thought um, there, is, there is much attention nowadays to uh, ways to promote these T cell responses at specific locations, such as in the mucosa. And we thought that perhaps this uh, expansion that we can trigger by perturbing the microbiota, this expansion of Listeria could be used to enhance 
the production of, uh, of specific CD8 T cells at the level of the intestine, in the intestinal tissue. And therefore, you could create a mucosal vaccine that can provide a very strong CD8 T cell response against antigens that are seen uh, or pathogens that could enter uh, through the intestinal route. And then I could see this being applied to many other strategies, not only tumors, right? Because if you can engineer this listeria that is attenuated to express, I don't know, antigens from even a viral pathogen or another intercellular bacteria and just give it as the strategy of first giving the antibiotic to clean a little bit the environment, putting the vaccine to grow and expanding these T-cells, you could use it as a potential vaccine strategy for other diseases. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the only the peculiarity is that you obtain a very strong response in the intestine, meaning that there will be T-cells that will accumulate in the intestine and they will stay there for a long time. So these are memory T-cells. In principle, you can use this approach to vaccinate against tumors or viral pathogens or intracellular pathogens of any sort that target the intestine. This would right. be the idea. Well, I think uh, that finishes our interview. It's really fascinating work that you're doing here at the university and thank you so much for doing this and accepting our invitation to this interview. No, thank you so much, Raul. This was a lot of fun. That brings us to the end of episode 2. Thanks a lot, Juan and Professor Becatini for this great scientific exchange. And thanks to you for listening and supporting Biosounds. Stay tuned for our next episode, where I will interview Mark Alessandrini, the Chief Technical Officer of Antion Biosciences, a spin-off from the University of Geneva, which is developing novel gene-modified cell therapies to treat and cure diseases. Here is a sneak peek. T-cells are really what we call the real stalwarts of the immune system. Follow us on Twitter and if you have any questions, suggestions or you are a scientist at the University of Geneva who wants to be featured in our podcast, send us a direct message. Thanks a lot for listening.